0: I'm cutting in here at the top of the episode to announce that we have cleared 100 episodes of Occult Confessions. To mark that milestone, I have invited the alchemical actors to share some of their experiences behind the scenes, uh, some favorite memories from the last three plus years of creating the show with uh, all of you. There's a lot that I enjoy about creating the show. I, I certainly enjoy the, the research and, and the writing. Um, you know, but the real joy for me comes with sharing that work and having the conversation uh, with my actors and sharing that conversation and the connections I've been able to have with all of you. We are at 100 episodes because of you. We would not have kept going if nobody was listening. Uh, but, but our community out there has uh, connected with the show. You've uh, shared your suggestions and ideas. You've shared the show with your friends and neighbors. You've become our patrons. You've sustained us. You've kept us going at this work. Uh, And I am so very grateful for that. It's been a real pleasure connecting with with all of you out there. I've gotten to know folks across the globe, uh, sharing stories and and connecting on topics, and and just sharing a passion uh, for these ideas, and and exploring these ideas with uh, with like-minded people, uh, and and that is that is truly truly uh, the reason we we keep at this. So thank you, thank you, for bringing us to a hundred episodes here of Occult Confessions. Let's get into it.
1: Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves.
0: Robert E. Howard's The Shadow Kingdom sits at the nexus of two realms of occult lore. The canon revolving around an Atlantean root race established by Helena Blavatsky in her secret doctrine in the late 1880s, and the Reptilian Conspiracy Theory, most closely identified with former sportscaster David Icke. The Shadow Kingdom tells the story of Atlantean warrior-turned-Valusian king Kull. The ambassador Ka Nu reveals a secret plot of shape-shifting serpent men hiding in Kull's own palace, and the blunt warrior king swings into action in opposition to the conspiracy, which in turn, swings into action against him, all coming to a terrible climax in the cursed chamber of a king murdered a thousand years before. The Shadow Kingdom is a work of fiction. In fact, it is arguably the earliest example of the sword and sorcery fantasy genre most popularly associated with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. But the Shadow Kingdom... Both drew on and introduced elements into occult and conspiracy lore that have been accepted by believers as absolute truth. It truly does skirt that line between truth and fiction, or at least truths people are willing to believe. For the second time in a row, I am joined by the literal Sisters, Olivia, our Grandmaster of the Order.
2: Hello. Hi.
0: Hello. Hi. You're feeling better today.
2: I am. I'm feeling a little bit off in general today. Just having one of those days, but beyond
0: that. But that's par for the course for you.
2: Okay. That's, it's like
0: every other day, isn't it?
2: Wow. Well, that seems. All right. like well, <laughs> a Like a slight. There's some sass. Some spice coming off from your mic. It's fine. Some
1: spice coming off of the mic.
2: Yeah. Some zest, if you will. <laughs> a
1: mild little lemon spice. zest. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Bri, how are you doing? I'm
1: good, Rob. I am I am zestful today. As you Olivia. are
0: also zestful. Yeah, We've got yeah. two zests, and we're trying to zest Olivia.
2: Well, it, <laughs> I don't like that. It occurred to me that we are back at it again, Brianna. Oh, literal
1: sisters. Back at it again.
2: Yeah, we didn't do that last Aww.
1: episode. We
2: were <laughs> together. Maybe realized we that little, we were a little off in the beginning. I was... Yes, I apologize for my head injury. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to the entire podcastosphere.
2: Well, apparently, you said I sounded like I was at a funeral and then a happy funeral, uh, or something. At the very
0: beginning, yeah, just when you said hello and then plug, plug, plug. Well, you get your chance to make it up today. Yeah. yeah. Let's pledge it out first. We the members of the the secret secret order order of uh, alchemical actors actors do solemnly solemnly commit commit ourselves ourselves to a full and and honest telling of of the the history of the the occult occult as far as we we know it. it.
3: I'm Savannah Barrett, otherwise known as the Sister of the 84th Degree, and I'm here to celebrate OC's 100th episode.
4: Hey all, Mim's here. One of the voice boys as we're called.
1: Hello, my name is Aubrey Radford, and I am Cult Confessions Werewolf in Residence.
5: Hello, my name is Sean Priest and you guys might know me as the voice of the Kings from Recall Confessions.
3: Um, I remember when we first started, I was so excited and we all actually thought that it would be a good idea to record the entire first season in one day in one tiny room in Chesapeake's library. And just to remind you, I believe the first episode was si- or the first season was six episodes, so like basically a six hour long day. Uh, And it was a really long day. And then after we recorded all six of those episodes, they didn't sound good. So then we got a new microphone and re-recorded all of them in our theater instead.
4: So when COVID started last year, I was in a mighty bad place mentally without a whole lot of a creative outlet at the time and a whole lot of personal issues going on. But being able to hop in and help out with this gave me something to look forward to and Help me make it through a time where I wasn't able to make music and I wasn't having a whole lot of luck booking any voiceover stuff.
1: Um, okay, so one of my favorite memories associated with the podcast would probably be um, the impromptu Occult Confessions t-shirt photo shoot.
4: I don't particularly have one moment, but uh, more or less the, the bunch of sessions that we were able to do during quarantine where we would just hop on a, on a Zoom call or something similar and or, or, or discord and just be able to to do these lines and be able to help you help out each other through all of this it's definitely kind of inspired me to want to take uh and pursue voice directing more seriously
3: and then after we re-recorded those posted them for a couple months we decided we still didn't like them and then rob went back rewrote those episodes and then we re-recorded them again <laughs> There was a lot of trials and errors when we were getting used to making a podcast, but at the end of the day, I'm really proud of all the hard work that's been put in, and I'm so happy that we actually have awesome confessors that listen to us and seem to actually enjoy listening to us, so that's awesome. Thank you, guys.
1: Uh, Jacob had to deal with me and James, where, you know, James is just goofy, and I, once you put a camera in front of me, I don't know how to act,
5: so... (laughs) James' face, James', is, uh, sorry, Jacob's face tells all. I remember doing the episode of The Knight of the Cart, and I remember sitting down with Brandon and talking about the lines, the different type of lines we're going to have to do, and how I was going to be the one that was going to be the the um goblin and also
4: the king at the time. As a side note, uh, Rob might put this in, he might not, but there's always something really special about recording any of the <laughs> lines but especially that first batch that we were able to do not too long before quarantine started when we were able to still record in person
5: it has been such an honor and a privilege to be able to do voice work with these guys and they are some of my closest and dearest friends and if you guys are listening to this thank you so much
3: um happy 100th episode to call confessions
0: all right let's get started with uh robert e howard so Robert Irvin Howard was born on the 22nd of January, 1906 in Paster, Texas. If you're from P. Aster, and I'm pronouncing that wrong, that makes me sad. Uh, but uh, you can let me know if you're from around P. Aster or I've, Pister.
1: I really need it to just be P. Aster. I can't. I think so. I can't yeah. be anything else now.
0: Peester sounds not as good at all. It's got to be P. P. sounds like a place. Peester sounds like a disease or something, a <laughs> disorder. What's going on with you? I got the Pister. So anyway, Dr. Isaac Howard was his dad, uh, and Hester, Hester Irvin Howard was mom. There's a name you don't hear anymore, Hester. His father was a traveling physician, and the family moved around the state of Texas to a variety of oil boom towns throughout his youth. So chasing that uh, that gusher. Ew. Howard's childhood was... M- yeah,
1: more- <laughs> like that sounded that either, bad, Rob. But...
0: That's what they call an oil A well. A gusher? When it- yeah, it gushes. Really?
1: Chasing that gusher, gusher?
2: That sounds bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, look it up later.
2: Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to look that I up. I won't either. <laughs> but thank you.
0: On second thought, yeah, maybe you shouldn't Google that. So Howard's childhood. What was I talking about? <laughs> Howard's childhood, which was marked with uncertainty because he's going from town to town chasing oil (laughs) black gold dr howard invested in a series of get rich quick schemes that kept the family in perpetual financial distress and his mother contracted tuberculosis while nursing sick relatives hester then committed herself to her son's intellectual development so she survives tuberculosis
2: oh sick Woo!
0: hooray yeah i mean at that time in history that's Pretty good, because World War yeah. II is think when we really got our, our penicillin together. Mother and son had a close relationship, and her interest in Howard's writing pushed him to begin seeking publishers for his stories at the tender age of 15. While working to establish his career and piling up rejections from the pulp magazines, he worked as a journalist, also spent some time with the post office, and took a steer- series of stenography jobs.
2: He's busy at 15.
0: A, yeah, he said, "Yeah. Well, you know, mom's mom, mom's pushing him.
2: I guess the life expectancy
0: wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't plans to, fantastic." Well, we'll get to Howard's life expectancy in a minute. Oh, okay. <laughs> Howard sold his first story, a caveman tale called Spear and Fang to Weird Tales for $16 in 1924 when he was just 18 years old. Oh yeah. Uh, for those of you who aren't Lovecraft people, I guess you are now because you listened to our Necronomicon episode, but Weird Tales is the magazine that is most closely associated with Lovecraft short stories. In 1927, he sold the Shadow Kingdom to Weird Tales, this time for the much heftier sum of $100.
2: That's an upgrade.
0: That is an upgrade. From $16 to 100 yeah. yeah.
2: That's pretty good back then, too, right? Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's some, some cash right there. In addition to his weird horror and fantasy stories, Howard was writing uh, boxing fiction. Not fiction Whoa. about putting things in boxes, but people hitting each other in the face okay. with gloves. he's getting okay. into the
2: sports genre. I appreciate yeah, yeah. it.
0: Oh, you, you like the sports genre? No, 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 no.
2: <laughs> I don't appreciate the sports genre so much as I appreciate him broadening Diversifying? his horizons. Okay. Yes.
0: <laughs> Uh, he published in the magazines Fight Story and Sports Story Magazine. So we have to bear in wow. mind what a weird time this was in history. There are entire magazines devoted to fictional stories about sports.
2: Wild. <laughs> it's sports fan fiction. It's fine. sport.
1: Go sports. I like yeah. boxing, though. I
2: do like boxing.
0: But It's like if you really enjoy reading, but also sports.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, yeah, apparently fan fiction. So... Although he earned he was earning a living on his writing, unfortunately the market collapsed with the Great Depression and he lost his savings. So that hundred dollars mm-hmm. came and went. Uh, when not one but two of the banks he'd placed his money in collapsed. Imagine that. So speak yeah. about diversifying, right? <laughs> he was in yeah. two different banks. Oi. He became a member of H.P. Lovecraft's Pulp Literary Letter Writing Circle when Weird Tales forwarded a letter he'd wrote to them uh, praising Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls. So in other words, Howard wrote a letter to Weird Tales saying, yay, that Lovecraft story about rats in walls, man, that uh, that really got me. And they just sent it to Lovecraft, and Lovecraft was like, ah, you're that guy that writes about boxing.
1: Oh, I thought you meant that they sent his letter back to him.
0: I do know. They say forwarded oh. it to Lovecraft.
1: Okay.
0: Lovecraft called him Two-Gun Bob.
1: Why? <laughs> Why did he call him Two-Gun Bob? Why Bob?
0: Uh, it's not like a... Well, because his name is Robert.
2: Oh, oh right, right,
0: right. But, but the Two-Gun part is because of his affection for masculine culture and because of his home state, Texas. Oh,
2: like the
1: guns, the, the muscles. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: That's kind of incredible.
0: Well, if you compare him to Lovecraft, not that Lovecraft is... Uh, at all effeminate in his writing, what with you know giant monsters devouring people and stuff, but sounds pretty feminine
1: uh, to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: Okay, I meant that in the in most March...
1: positive way possible, just to clarify.
0: <laughs> There's no need to clarify. I I was with you right right away. Thank you. <laughs> in March of 1932, uh, Mr. Howard created his most famous and enduring character, Conan the Cimmerian.
1: Oh. You probably
0: known him know him as Conan the Barbarian.
1: What is it yeah. with the Sumerians? <laughs> what
0: do you mean? I... <laughs> where, where else have you heard about Sumerians? Where, we talk? About... Oh, what not we... Sumerian. No, this is Sumerian. Sumerian.
1: Thank you for the clarification oh. I, yeah, yeah. I
0: said. That's good. Yeah, yeah. No. So it's not an actual Wait, uh, ancient is Sumerian, culture. What is then? It's a fake ancient culture.
5: Oh, okay. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: I didn't okay. Get it either. I thought it was a real
2: term. Got it.
0: And I've I've added a note here just so we know that Conan the Barbarian was famously portrayed by, do you guys know?
2: No, but I remember the show.
0: Arnold. Oh. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh. Huh. 1982 was when Conan the Barbarian came out.
2: Mm. They must have done, did they do like a remake or something? Or in the 90s or something? You're
0: probably right, I yeah. I think
2: they did. Because it was that really like ridiculous show. I yeah. Think. But I don't know. Maybe it's the same, I don't know. Mm.
0: Maybe you're thinking of Xena Warrior Princess.
2: Oh, no. I no. used to watch that with my mom, like, way before Brie was born. Oh, my God. my Kevin mom Sorbo
0: obs- is Hercules.
2: My mom is obsessed with that show. Oh, my God. She dressed up as her one year. I don't know, Brianna, I don't know really? if you ever saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For We used to have these Halloween parties at the karate school, and, yeah, she dressed up one time. It was pretty badass. I a lot. Nice. Yeah.
0: Interestingly, the plot of the movie Conan the Barbarian, incorporated the Howard character Thulsa Doom, played by James Earl Jones, as the master of a snake cult. Both Tulsa Doom, Thulsa Doom, and the the beauty of fictional characters, I can pronounce these any way I want, Thulsa Doom and the snake cult were borrowed from Howard's King Cull stories, but had nothing to do with each other, appearing in completely different tales. Or Conan. So in other words... It's sort of like a Cole Porter musical today. Like they just took a bunch of like pieces of all the different musicals. This is very nerdy <laughs> and put them together into one musical. They took his best songs and just stuck them together. This is sort of what they did with Conan is they just took you know, elements from different Howard stories and pulled them together into one movie. And the snake cult was one of those. So, Howard wrote the Conan and Cull stories in the fictional Hyborian Age, a mythical time before recorded history that uh, is fictional. So, he gave up writing the Conan stories in 1935, in part because weird tales didn't pay him in a timely fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's rough. And in part because he wanted to create a new set of stories set in his beloved American Southwest. He began writing Westerns. But... His suicide put an abrupt end to this second phase of his career.
2: Oh, shit.
0: A little foreshadowing there. Hold that thought. His only real romantic relationship was with Noveline Price, an aspiring writer. They dated for two years in the mid-1930s until Howard's uh, responsibility to look after his sick mother so consumed him that he didn't have time for Price. And she went on to date one of his best friends, Truett Vinson.
2: Mm. Ouch. That, that stinks. Wait, did yeah. she say her yeah. name was no- Noveline?
0: Noveline. Noveline.
2: So, and she yeah. wanted to be a writer, and her name mm-hmm. is literally like Novel. <laughs> is that <laughs> Yeah. That's beautiful. Love that.
0: Howard had an intense and ultimately tragic relationship with his mother, for those of you who haven't picked that up yet. <laughs> mm. Yeah. When she slipped into a coma in June 1936, he borrowed a 38 Colt automatic from his friend Lindsay Tyson, and on June the 11th, while keeping vigil over his mother, he asked a nurse if she would ever regain consciousness. When the nurse said no, he went out to his car, parked in the driveway, and shot himself.
1: Jesus, okay.
0: Eight hours later, he was dead, and the next day, his mother died. They had a joint funeral and were buried in the family plot he'd bought the day before. Oh,
2: my God. That's crazy.
0: Isn't that an incredible story?
2: Wow. Okay.
0: Very odd relationship with mom.
1: You could say that. Oh my God.
0: Yeah. 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 So uh, they must have been extremely close when he was starting his career, like when we're talking about the teenage years. It's uh, So much so that it prevented him from forming a you know, a mature sexual relationship with a woman mm. and and then this this suicide. Conan the Barbarian and uh, Howard's fame stems from the paperback publication of the Conan stories in 1965, 1965, the same period as the paperback publication of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the start of a fantasy boom. We always think about Lord of the Rings, especially now with the movies and all, but Conan the Barbarian was really first to the punch, and Conan was right there in 65 when this was all becoming big, but Howard was long dead. He couldn't enjoy it. Mm. Lion Sprague de Comp. who okay. was the right. editor. That, that is the editor of the Conan series. Lyon Sprague de Camp, uh, had no compunction about reordering the stories into an imposed chronology, inserting some of his own stories to close the gap, and even rewriting some of Howard's stories. Howard had focused on the theme of liberty, but de Camp foca- shifted the focus to the Sumerian's manifest destiny, both very American themes. Howard was labeled a literary hack taken to psychosis, but in the 1970s, after DeCamp's death, the stories were revived and re-edited into a definitive edition consummate with Howard's original, which oh. yeah, I suppose you could buy now if you, if you get interested in this after this episode.
2: Well, that's good, at least.
0: All right, let's, so let's get into the story. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to make everyone want to go out and buy some Howard or <laughs> the opposite. So <clears throat> talk about the Shadow Kingdom. The shadow kingdom remains one of howard's most enduring stories even though his claim to fame really is conan and the sword and sorcery genre the protagonist is cull king of elusia and former warrior of atlantis cull is considered to be the prototype for howard's more famous conan the atlanteans who are one of several barbarian tribes including the picts p-i-c-t-s the picts in howard's fictional universe they turned their back on Cull when he went out into the world to seek his fortune. Atlantis and Pict are the barbarian lands, as opposed to the Seven Kingdoms, one of which Cull now rules. As I say all these things, you'll start to think of all sorts of stuff, like uh, Game of Thrones, and uh, it, like it just calls to mind all these things. But Howard was coming up with these sort of this universe long before, uh, you know, it, it became cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how many kingdoms are there in in Game of Thrones?
1: I think it's seven. I was going to say Is it seven, seven, or eight it's Exactly the or same. <laughs> I think it's seven. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So an unnamed emissary. Let's get into the story of Cull. An unnamed emissary or diplomat arrives in Cull's court to invite him to meet with the ambassador Kanu. Cull recognizes this emissary as a Pict, a rival tribe of the Atlanteans. But in his capacity as king of Alusia, he knows he must put these old rivalries behind him. Like when you go to college with a kid who went to your rival high school and you're both in the chorus of Annie, get your gun. It's exactly like that. A lot of musicals in today's episode. The ambassador Kanu requests through his Pictish emissary that Kull attend the night's festivities alone. So there's going to be some festivities that the king can attend in the Pictish court. Pictish tent. It's not really a court. It's a tent? It's, 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 it's like, you know, they're like camped outside the city. But
2: he has to go alone?
0: Kull is afraid of nothing whatsoever because he's super buff and also good with a sword. Mm. Right? What is there to fear if you're super buff and good with a sword? Nothing. And he decides it would be perfectly fine for him to just go alone to this shady ambassador's party. Oh. Who needs guards? Who needs... Oh,
2: he just decides to go alone.
0: Yeah, he's buff. After Kull arrives, nothing bad happens to buff people.
1: <laughs> okay. So wait, does nothing happen?
0: Uh, Well, I, I won't give it away. Oh, I thought After that was After Kull arrives. <laughs> he's just arriving at the party. Okay. Stay with me. Kanu clears the room and begins to spill a whole lot of secrets. So <laughs> he's just like, okay, everybody get out. I'm going to tell secrets to my my buddy the king here while y'all are gone. A whole lot of secrets, uh, but at the same time, he's not spilling any secrets whatsoever. Oh. He tells Kull that a piece is coming to the land. Tomorrow, he will send a helper to Kull, a man named Brule, who will bear a certain piece of dragon jewelry so that Kull can identify him from all the unders- other strangers who show up to offer him help. Because I assume that's happening all the time. The night can
6: hear. There are worlds within worlds. But you may trust me, and you may trust Brule, the Spear Slayer. Look, examine it closely. Brule will wear it on his arm when he comes to you tomorrow night, so that you may know him. Trust Brule as you trust yourself, and do what he tells you to. And in proof of trust, look ye.
7: The stolen gem, the green jewel from the temple of the serpent, Valka.
0: To earn Cull's trust, Kanu reveals a secret about himself as a kind of collateral. The ambassador is in possession of a great jewel stolen from the Temple of the Serpent. This, now it's sounding like a Nickelodeon uh, game show. I
2: was thinking, oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Hidden uh, Temple. <laughs> hidden Temple. Hidden Temple, yeah. I was thinking it's like some Indiana Jones shit.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is apparently uh, a thing you definitely don't want to do. You do not want to steal the great jewel from the Temple of the Serpent. If ever you find yourself in a Robert E. Howard fictional universe and someone says, hey, you want to steal this jewel from this serpent temple? Say no, Mm. I don't want to do that. Even if you're an important man like the Ambassador Kanu, so even he can't get away with this. And if anyone found out that Kanu had this jewel, they would probably kill him and everyone he knows. Yeah. So, Call decides that it's okay to trust this guy. So this guy's like, hey, look, I have this deadly jewel, this jewel that people would kill me if they knew I had. And Call's like, hey, you're okay. What? You're <laughs> an okay guy. Basically because if Call told <clears throat> anyone, right, they would just kill this guy.
1: Wait, so which one's the buff one again?
0: Kull is buff. Okay, Kanu Kull is, is buff. Okay. Kanu is like a, he's a big guy. He's a he's like he's like an emperor. He's like a Roman emperor kind oh, okay. of character. They're making like, okay. a Survivor
2: you know? alliance. There's he's like hey I have the hidden oh immunity God. idol and yeah.
0: I'm showing <laughs> yeah. you
2: that's exactly
1: people out here. I there know that watch. I know that's exactly what it is. But
0: maybe this is required reading before you do Survivor.
1: Oh. Anyway.
0: <laughs> so, Cull decides it's okay to trust him, and whoever pops by with the dragon armband the next day is also going to be okay for him to trust. What? So. Okay. He's, he's, he's buff, and he has a sword. He's not known for his, you know, <laughs> discerning wit. Mm. So, when armband man arrives through the window, he is none other than the nameless Pictish, Pictish emissary who had invited Cull to the ambassador's party the day before. So remember there was that guy who came and said, he's like, come out and hang out out here. He came through a window? Yeah, they're always jumping through windows.
1: They're buff. That's what buff people do. I guess. They're just parkouring. They're just
2: trying to show off their
1: buffness. (laughs) Yes.
0: I've never been. Every turn. Buff. I'm not really. I don't have the frame (laughs) to be buff, so I only enter through doors. I mean, I'm assuming there's
2: no glass on these windows, right? (laughs) That's a lot less impressive if there isn't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, they're not shattering as they. Like answer. every
2: single then, time, they're not. What am I here
1: for? There's just a man who comes in, replaces the sheet of glass behind the scene, like while they're Constantly. having a the conversation.
0: Constantly, servants coming and going with panes of glass. <laughs> so this is Bruhl who just came through the window. With the dragon armband. And Brol reveals a secret passage in Cull's kingly chamber that even Cull didn't know about and leads Cull down through the passage where they discover all 18 of Cull's Red Slayer guards sleeping in a pile.
1: That's a lie. Are they sleeping? Because that doesn't sound like...
0: They might be dead. Sleeping. Uh, Yeah, the Red Slayers are sort of like the Secret Service. So Cull is super annoyed at this. What are all these guys doing sleeping on the job? So they go and check in front of Cull's Kingly Chamber door, and lo and behold, there are eighteen guards on duty. Okay, but, ha- but uh oh yeah. The
1: concern that he says is not what is the secret passage under my throne room? How did you know about the secret passage? It's like <laughs> Why y'all slacking? Like what <laughs> yeah,
0: There's a lot of stuff being kept from the king, that's for sure. But uh, now now people have doppelgangers. There are all he had 18 guards, yeah. they're all passed out behind the throne, and but they're also on duty. What the hell is going on? Okay. How can they be in two places at once? Nay! Those
7: are the same men! In Falka's name, this is sorcery! This is insanity! I saw with my own eyes the bodies of those men, not eight minutes a-gone! It's there they stand!
5: Cole, what know ye of the traditions of this race ye rule? Much, and yet little. Felucia is so old. Aye, we are but barbarians, infants compared to the seven empires. Not even they themselves know how old they are. Neither the memory of man nor the annals of historians reach back far enough to tell us when the first man came up from the sea and built cities on the shore. But Cole, men were not always ruled by men.
0: Cole and Brule hear something stirring in the corridor and quickly hide behind a tapestry, like Hamlet or or Carol King,
2: Scooby-Doo. Yeah,
1: of or Scooby-Doo.
0: Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yes,
2: or Scooby-Doo. Yes. Class levels are very different, Rob, apparently.
0: (laughs) I've got Hamlet and Carol King. You have Scooby Doo. Yes. Two, who is the king's chief counselor, his name is Two, like, you know, French for you, enters with a blade drawn to kill the king. So his chief counselor comes in ready to stab him.
2: That sucks.
0: I- I- Kull is enraged and he leaps from behind the tapestry and drives his sword into two's spine, killing him. Oh. Oh. Then
4: things start to get weird.
1: They're not weird <laughs> yet. <Yeah>. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay.
4: Crow leaned above him, teeth bared in the killer's snarl, heavy brows a scowl above eyes that were like the gray ice of the cold sea. Then he realized the hilt and recoiled. Shaken, Dizzy, the hand of death at his spine. For as he watched, Tu's face became strangely dim and unreal. The features mingled and merged in a seemingly impossible manner. Then like a fading mask of fog, the face suddenly vanished. And in its stead, gaped and leered a monstrous serpent's head. Valka! gasped Kull, sweat beating in his forehead. And again, Valka! A man
7: with
5: the head of a snake. This, then, is a priest of the serpent god? Aye, two sleeps unknowing. These fiends can take any form they will. That is, they can buy magic charm or the like, fling a web of sorcery about their faces as an actor dons a mask, so that they resemble anyone they wish to.
0: Ha. And their curse is Valka. He says, Valka. Like, oh shit. Valka. Yeah. Brule goes to dispose of the body, and when he returns, suddenly becomes a giant jerk and attempts to murder Kull, <laughs> his dragon friend. He left, and he came back, and now he's a, he's a murdering asshole. Is
1: he a reptilian?
0: Ah, I thought you were my friend, Brule. Luckily, Cull is super buff and good with a sword. Have I mentioned that? <laughs> and he has cat-like reflexes, so he stabs Brule, killing him, and... Brule's own face fades and transforms into that of yet another snake priest. Yeah. I gotta say, props to Howard here. This is a pretty shocking narrative moment, because, you know, Brule was our only friend for a while here, and he showed us all these secrets, and he showed us the snake people, so... Wow.
2: Yeah, the drama. It's a lot.
1: But yeah.
0: the, but Howard's not done turning turnin oh, the screw okay. here. The shock doesn't last, because the snake Brule isn't wearing the dragon armlet. What? The dragon armlet, Bree, is a sign that you can trust him. <gasps> oh,
1: okay, I understand now.
0: So Brule was not actually a snake person. Somebody had assumed the form of Brule uh,
1: oh my. to
0: try to kill Cole. Oh yeah, this is yeah, wild. Okay. This is like Mission Impossible. Holy I'm
1: on it shit. now, Rob. Oh my <laughs> god. It. Okay.
0: Another imposter attempting to fool the king and assassinate him. And Brule returns, wearing his armlet. And he explains all of this to us, the reader. Oh, all right. That's how. So the armlet is something a snake priest actually cannot wear because the dragon or winged dinosaur, which is apparently another name for dragon in the Howard (laughs) universe.
2: That checks out. (laughs) The
0: the dragon was actually, fun fact, an ancient enemy of the snake people.
2: Would you look at
1: that?
0: Yeah. Comes full circle. So they would never wear the dragon armband. And there's another trick to tell whether or not someone is a snake person because of the shape of their jaws. They can speak they cannot speak the phrase Kanama ka lajerama lajerama. I can't speak it. I can do this which. I'm not a snake person. Kanama ka lajerama. Kanama you guys try ka it. lajerama. There you go. Can you do it can Olivia? I say it again. Kanama ka lajerama. Kanama ka lajerama.
2: Lodge, lodge, something? No. rama, I did it.
0: Okay, there you go. That's proof that none of us are snake people. Well. The meaning, because they can't say that. So if you just try to get somebody to say it and they refuse, they're a snake person. Hmm. Now you know. The meaning of the phrase is lost to time. So don't ask what, what? it means. <laughs> I really do love Howard's writing, uh, but its secret power to distinguish snake men from real men remains. The only purpose of speaking those words is to determine who is and is not a snake person. Uh, but we'll put them on the website in case you need them. Okay. Then Howard gets poetic as Cull glimpses the ancient past
4: through his mind's eye. He stopped short, staring for suddenly the silent swinging wide of a mystic door. Misty, Unfathomed reaches opened in the recesses of his consciousness, and for an instant he seemed to gaze back through the vastness that spanned life and life, seeing through the vague and ghostly fog's dim shapes, reliving dead creatures, men in combat with hideous monsters, vanquishing a planet of frightful terrors, against a grey, ever-shifting background Moved strange nightmare forms, fantasies of lunacy and fear, and man, the jest of the gods, the blind, wisdomless striver from dust to dust, following the long, bloody trail of his destiny, knowing not why, bestial, blundering, like a great, murderous child, yet somewhere, a spark of divine fire. The
0: snake people, like the harpies and wolf people and bat people, were all part of an ancient race. These other groups were extinguished by humans, except that the snake people and a few wolfmen, but, but enough to put Lon Chaney in business, have survived. They return periodically whenever humankind forgets about them. Their current incarnation in the story is as priests of the serpent god, and they have fooled all of humanity into worshiping the serpent. So you know, in hindsight, it's it's, it's kind of ethically okay to steal their jewels, but still, you'll you'll get cut.
1: Mm.
0: there's a weird moment in which brule and Kull see the ghost of a king murdered by snake people a thousand years earlier so they sort of have this vision of an ancient snake murder his name is Ayalal, and it's it's a kind of foreshadowing the next day the serpent priests disguise themselves as Kull's 17 counselors and lure him into a uh, a room where the ancient king Aelal had been murdered by serpent men a thousand years earlier but Cull had that vision so he's like "Oh, oh I know what's going on here Cull and Brule managed to murder all of them because huh? and I didn't say this earlier Brule is also pretty buff and good with a sword but not as buff and good with a sword as Cull. Mm-hmm. so don't get confused there but he does enter through windows so I guess we knew he was buff anyway of course and besides, the Serpent Men may be clever sorcerers, but they're pretty crappy warriors.
1: I feel like they would so. be. They're all wiggly and limp. And... Wiggly and <laughs> How can they idiots? hold up that sword or go through a window? Yeah. You heard me. Wiggly and limp. Damn.
0: Well, but I mean, there, there's a point being... Uh, there's a point to be made here about Howard's universe. You know, these ultra-masculine figures are the heroes, and Ugh. the snake people are necessarily like you don't want to be smart in howard's universe it's better to be buff and good with a sword than to be smart because intelligence sort of like equates to craftiness but which is lies you know, you want to be a, do both well you we can so here's the yeah. it's like a clint eastwood john wayne kind of hero it's a very like remember he wanted to write westerns after he was done with mm-hmm. all this sword and sorcery stuff he that that's the universe you know he's very masculine men Albeit, in the sword and sorcery genre, they have to be super buff because they don't have guns. Mm. So, wielding that broadsword. Anyhow, uh, after they've murdered all the serpent men, they come to the real council chamber where they discover a duplicate cull holding court with the actual counselors. Wait. Yeah. God an elegant climax in my opinion I was picking on Howard a little bit but I like this moment the king is astounded and doubts his own identity because he's not very bright but Brule shakes him out of it because now is not the time for an existential crisis yeah (laughs) he's like wait is that me? who am I? am I a serpent person?
5: poor guy (laughs) got all those muscles Valka's name be not a fool can you yet be astounded after all we have seen? By now you should have been slain, and yon monster reigning in your stead, unknown by those who bowed to you. Leap and slay swiftly, or else we are undone. The Red Slayers, true men, stand close on each hand, and none but you can reach and slay him. Be swift!
0: Cull slays the false Cull, who reverts to his snake form in front of the counselors, and Kanu emerges because he's been hanging around somewhere. Remember that ambassador who had the jewel? Oh, yeah. Just, like, watching everything. He's just been, like, hanging out in the background, watching everything yeah, happen.
2: Why? 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 Why was he here?
0: Because he can't... Who's going to get involved in this craziness? He's no, not I'm buff. Just he's buff. He doesn't come through windows.
2: Why we introduced yeah. him. Has he done anything? He had the jewel. He's just...
0: He had the jewel, and he's like, "Hey, man, there's snake priests out there, and, and you got to watch out." I'm going to send my friend, oh, right. and right, then comes right, Brule, right, his right, buff right, friend. Right. So his buff friend does all this dirty work for him. Kanu just hangs out in the back, and he, like drinks wine, you know, like sleeps with chicks and stuff. Yeah. So he's doing all that in the background while this is all happening, and he like comes out of the shadows, and there he is, and he he proceeds to explain to the astounded men of Volusia about the true plot of the serpent priests. Cull brings the counselors to see all the serpent men he and Brule had slain in the other chamber, and he drives his sword into the door sealing it. (laughs) Full of rotting serpent people.
7: Let this room be doubly accursed, and let those rotting skeletons lie there forever as a sign of the dying might of the serpent. Here I swear that I shall hunt the serpent men from land to land, from sea to sea, giving no rest until all be slain. That good triumph and the power of hell be broken. This thing I swear I call King of Felucia. Uh,
0: As I mentioned, it's a hallmark of Howard's work that the masculine, independent, forthright, unfancy, and honest leader wins in the end. Cull's brawn and Kanu and Brule's cunning outmatch the snake priest's sorcery. So I'm being a a little disingenuous, I guess. Kanu, I feel like Kanu's our people. You know what I mean? He's a smart guy. He's scheming around in the background. He's on the side of good. But he's he's not jumping through windows or anything, wielding a broadsword. That's more like us. He can do his reps in the gym. He can put up a few push-ups. He can do some sit-ups. But my man is not competing in in Mr. Universe, you know?
1: Yeah, he's not doing all the parkour. (laughs) No, he's he's not a
0: parkour guy. So, but, but, you know, Cull, the hero, is, you know, this John Wayne kind of figure without the guns. Different kind of guns. The snake Mm. priests, who we'll soon see are a gloss of occult adepts, are the clear villains. Sneaky and conniving and dangerous with magic that deceives but does not control and conceals their physical weakness, their... Wiggliness, as Bree says. Later, Howard approaches Cull's universe from the snake priest's perspective in the less elegant but still enjoyable story of Delcardi's cat. So that's it for for oh. that story. We're going to do a different story by Howard that I think is going to get to really get into how Howard portrayed the occult. You got me? And it's called okay. Delcardi's cat. it starts with a talking cat the talking cat you're gonna love you guys are gonna love this story i think
1: i feel like the talking
0: cat's name is samaris and samaris claims to be a thousand years old and has psychic powers to foretell future events and find stuff that you've lost
1: that seems handy
0: yeah it'd be a good cat to have if you like cats Despite the fact that the cat is always accompanied by a servant who wears a veil covering his face so that he could totally be just doing all the talking, Cull is amazed by the accuracy of the cat's statements. All right, you got me? So so there's, there is a cat, and the yes. cat is talking, or <laughs> seems to be talking. But there is, for some reason, this guy who's always with him, and you can't see his mouth. Uh. But Cull doesn't think, ah, oh, that's suspicious. He's like, that's an amazing cat.
1: look at that cat he's got his own servant
0: what a cool cat he's just like garfield get this cat some lasagna (laughs) so when the cat tells him that his friend brule has been dragged under the waters of the forbidden lake remember brule window goer very buff by the great serpent so so far so good the cat's like hey uh, you or you? If you're amazed by me, let me tell you something that you ought to be concerned about. Your friend Brule—he got dragged under the water by the great serpent.
1: I thought Brule was too buff to be
0: this serpent's dragged. pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Is this is a <laughs> yeah. buff. Well, this serpent? is not a serpent man. This is a an actual sea serpent. Oh, it's yeah, an actual yeah,
1: serpent. Yeah. Okay.
0: So you know Cull? He's gonna go save his his buddy because he. <laughs> let me say this again, Brule, like. He, at a distance has been drug under the water. Can you can you picture this scenario? Cull is in his court, just like having a conversation with oh a cat. Gosh. And somewhere in some lake, which is not right next door, a man <laughs> has been drug under the water. But Cull says to himself, I can run to that lake and fish this man out and he's going to be okay.
1: Yeah, he's buff.
0: He's buff. He can hold his breath for... Several yeah. hours.
2: How'd that work? Yeah. For
0: him? <laughs> like Beowulf, after confronting and killing—this <laughs> is a very nerdy joke. After confronting and killing a series of strange monsters, including a horned, forearmed shark creature. Let me say that one more time. I'm sorry. A horned, forearmed shark creature attacks him under Care the water.
1: Mine. Oh. But he's
0: like Super Mario because my man can hold his water. uh, Hold hold his breath under the water.
2: (laughs) My man can hold his water.
0: Hold his water. He he, he carries that water for... Cull is carrying that water for society. For Volusia. (laughs) Cull, he can hold his water.
2: But it's like camels.
0: (laughs) Anyway, he arrives at a great underwater city. The lake people tell him they have existed in this city since before the time of humankind. They scold Cull for slaying his way into their midst and threatening them with the sword. Right. So he's just like shark thing with all those arms. I'm gonna kill that. What if he was just trying to make it friends? Been nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I could have just been like more arms for hugging. The lake. he's you gonna know? hug
6: Cull. <laughs> Death and ruin follow the course of your race. Do we not know? No man has dared this lake for over a hundred years. You come seeking treasure or to ravish and slay like all your bloody handed kind?
1: That's pretty metal.
0: Pretty metal. As it turns out, the talking cat was wrong, and his best buddy Brule is not in the underwater city. Imagine that. The, the cat oh my was God. wrong. After a brief attempt to kill Cull, the underwater king acknowledges that Cull is a true king, because he can't kill Cull, he's buff and holding his breath. And he's a true man, the truest of men, and decides to let Cull return to the surface on the back of a great behemoth. It unravels that the slave had been fooling Cull with a ventriloquist act, I know you're all surprised.
1: Wow, Rob. Who wouldn't know? And the
0: reason the cat was well, the reason the servant was doing this is so that his mistress could marry the man she wanted. Uh, the, so, in what? other words, his mistress is Delcardi's. The title of the story is Delcardi's Cat, uh-huh. and Delcardi's really didn't want to marry this one guy. She wanted to marry this other guy, but her dad was like, "You got to marry this guy over here." You know how that is. So she was like, "Wait a second! I have a talking cat who thinks otherwise." <laughs>
1: That's power oh, okay, is. okay, that's
0: yeah. exactly how you should yeah it, was, it. Yeah. as far as Delcardi's is concerned, that was a smart, smart choice,
1: that's probably what I would have done, not gonna lie
0: and and the cat was nevertheless, as it turns out, actually an ancient cat who'd lived for thousands of years but just didn't talk
2: okay, that's
1: so the so cat nice. was
0: magical all along. <laughs> it was a thousand year old okay, cat I like it's an ancient cat, I like this, story. but it just couldn't talk,
1: hmm. so, you know what. You, you take what you <laughs> right. can get it's So so
0: Howard is so idiosyncratic, right? He's so, like, the details in his stories are, like, it's just wild. He's like, yeah, the cat was was not magic cat. Oh, but it was magic. It was actually an ancient cat, but it didn't talk. So, uh, the ventriloquist slave had been momentary, momentarily replaced by an evil wizard who sent Kull off to die in the Forbidden Lake. <laughs> so bizarre so it was also <laughs> so complicated the slave who tried to get del Cartis out of being married didn't turn out to be the one who was fooling cull that was a different guy who replaced the slave Whoa. it's it's just unnecessarily oh, wacky in this episode howard so here's the reason i told this story it's there's what's one of the very few set of cull stories but in this episode howard sympathizes with the ancient races our author here the lake people are wise and immortal, but they lack physical strength. And when they threaten to kill Cull, he tells them that though they may kill him eventually, he will kill many of them in the attempt. Cull is savage and simple in the shadow of these spiritually and intellectually superior lake people with many arms and sharks. The ancient races portrayed as manipulative and deceptive in the shadow kingdom are wise and admirable in Delcardi's cat.
2: Okay, duality. Yeah.
0: So there's complexity here. The cat itself offers its own weird sort of commentary on the occult. Although there's a bunch of faking going on around the cat to fool the credulous king, Howard says the cat is actually a thousand years old and kind of magic. In the lake people in Samaris, the ancient cat, we have a vision of genuine magic as something ancient and venerable, but also often a tool of unscrupulous self-promoters in the modern world. Shamanism appropriated to sell skin cream or mediumship to create reality TV. I think it's really an insightful commentary on occultism. There's magic out there, but we're faking so much around it that it's difficult to get to the truth.
2: No, yeah, it is cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyhow, let's talk about Atlantis.
2: I've been wondering where Atlantis was.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the question now becomes where did Howard get all this stuff? It's an interesting world. It's very influential. The Conan stories, the sword and sorcery genre, like huge in Western culture. Cull's world and Conan's to a large extent are inspired by the works of, of course, Helena Blavatsky and one of her many acolytes, a guy we haven't talked about named William, S- William Scott Elliot. uh wrote a book called The Story of Atlantis, and we know that this was one of Robert Howard's sources when he was writing the Cull stories. So Scott Eliot's account of Atlantis identifies the Atlanteans as the fourth race in a succession of races outlined by Blavatsky, with our current race, which is better understood as a kind of long generation, we are the fifth race. There were three cataclysms during the Atlantean race, with the most recent one, 80,000 years ago, essentially wiping out the Atlanteans, except for the residents of an island Plato called Poseidonis.
1: Poseidonis.
0: Poseidonis.
1: It's a rough
0: rough name. So, Plato, of course, if you know, if we were doing an Atlantis episode, which we've talked about Atlantis in many different ways, but Plato believed that Atlantis was a real thing, uh, and that Poseidonus was what it was called, and it was submerged in 9564 BCE, just about ten thousand years before Jesus. Scott Elliott goes to lengths marshalling evidence from science and history to prove the likelihood that Atlantis existed. There is, for example, an enormous ridge in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean that is only a few hundred or a hundred fathoms deep. Here, presumably, was the continent of Atlantis. Similarities in wildlife and plant life, as well as human culture like mythology and religious rituals, including baptism, fasting, marriage, and embalming, Prove the existence of some ancient root race that disseminated these things to the various continents of the world. So he's saying, isn't it interesting that the Egyptians do this and the Mayans do this? And, you know, there's this fire worship that's happening in the Hindus and that's happening. And I'm sort of throwing some of my own examples in here, but he's saying that the reason we all have these shared religious traditions across the world is because we all used to be from Atlantis. Hmm. Got me? Yeah. Ancient writers give accounts of a lost continent in the middle of the ocean. Alien, A-E-L-I-N, alien Proclus, Marcellus, and Diodorus Siculus all recount stories of a continent in the Atlantic. Marcellus mentions seven islands whose inhabitants preserve the memory of the greater Atlantis that preceded them. Most famously, Plato makes multiple references to Atlantis in a series of works, namely the Timaeus, Critias, and Atlanticus. In Plato's view, the Atlanteans were warlike with rich and abundant lands. The Platonic concept of Atlantis seems to have been the source for Howard's Atlanteans, who were, remember, buff and barbaric, not, you know, <laughs> effete, occulty characters, sort of like Blavatsky seems to have imagined them. I think they were super tall in Blavatsky, too. Am I wrong about that?
2: <laughs> they, I think probably. I feel like a lot of the races were really tall <laughs> that she describes, yeah. right?
0: we the short ones. Yeah. Many of the current races of the world began as sometime rulers of Atlantis before migrating to conquer other parts of the globe. One Gaul legend claims that the French tribes were descended in part from immigrants from Atlantis. Mexico's Toltecs and Aztecs claim to be descended from Aztlan, which from Scott Elliott's perspective sounds an awful lot like Atlantis. Aztlan? Atlantis?
2: Okay. Kind of. You buy it?
0: (laughs) Bree, you buy it?
2: Uh,
0: Aslan? uh, Atlantis? uh, All right, sort of. The Iowa and Dakota Indians believe that all of America's indigenous people at one time lived together on an island towards the sunrise. You've probably heard that the flood legends, which span the ancient cultures of the Americas, the Middle East, and India, all reflect the cataclysm that brought down Atlantis. These races migrated from Atlantis and began as one of the succession of seven sub-races ruling over Atlantis, guided by a Manu, or spiritual teacher, who would occasionally incarnate among them. The dark-skinned and 12-foot-tall Ramoahal is one race, The Tlavatli, the now South American Toltec race, who blended with the Mayans before the Mexica unified the tribes into the Aztec Empire. The first Turanian, the original Semite, the Akkadian, and the Mongolian. Those are your seven descendant tribes from Atlantis. The procession of subraces began about a million years ago. The Toltecs were the height of Atlantean civilization, but also the start of its decline, since it's pretty much all downhill (laughs) if you're the height. Although they had achieved great psychic and occult power, they turned it away from spiritual development and toward material wealth and the conquering of enemies. The spiritual guidance of the Manu was withdrawn and the continent fell into civil war. A steady struggle between the followers of the good law of the higher powers and the separate group of the black arts, the self-directed sorcerers, The battle between these groups persisted through the remainder of the Toltec period. Migrations from the British Isles in Egypt and the Americas began after that. Stonehenge was constructed by Atlantean emigrants, of course, with the simplicity of the ritual site serving as a protest to the elaborate nature of Atlantean temples. Uh, Maybe you guys remember from our Blavatsky series, Blavatsky's theory really was that And it's not just Blavatsky, I mean, this is a hermetic principle, it's an alchemical principle, that we are constantly involved in this process of spiritualization and materialization. So for her, the races hit a sort of height of occult, magical, psychic power, and then they're going to descend down into materiality, and then they're going to ascend back to spirituality, and we're we're toggling between those. Does that sound familiar? Yep. Not everyone was taught to read and write in Toltec Atlantis, FYI, only the children of superior abilities. And in addition to the arts, letters, and sciences, these children were instructed in the development of personal power. Scott Elliot references Bulwer-Lytton's coming race here, saying that Bulwer-Lytton has fairly accurately described the operation of Viril. How about that, Olivia? Bringing it back. On the east side of the continent was the city of the Golden Gates, the Rome of Atlantis. A canal system transported water from a nearby lake to support the population of two million. The elite of Atlantis rode in private airships. Of course they did. These airships were like yachts and could accommodate between two and eight passengers. When they were appropriated for military use, battle airships could carry between 50 and 100 men. They were made of lightweight wood or metal and shaped like boats. They were propelled by mechanical means. Tubes, stretching from a metal chest at the center of the vessel, forced air toward the ground, driving the ship into the air. Hmm, complex system of yeah, tubes. Like
2: steampunk vibes there. I don't
0: know. Yeah, absolutely. Marriages tended to be monogamous, and women were treated as equals from infancy. They wrote on thin sheets of metal or porcelain. What? They didn't have paper, apparently. They, have, they had metal and porcelain. Oh
2: my that god. That sounds
1: They're like cool. the most horrible sound must have happened every time they wrote all day
0: long. <laughs> they ate the parts of the animal modern people discard, including the blood, and discarded the parts that modern people eat.
2: Hmm. Like the, the awful?
1: Muscles,
0: stuff? I guess. Yeah, they ate the bones and the blood and they threw out the. Did they eat the organs? The flesh.
2: Well, we eat those, so it's not. Yeah,
1: like. But not a lot
0: of people eat that. Yeah, they probably ate the organs, yeah. They ate fish in an advanced stage of decomposition, oh, which God. modern oh. people would oh. find gross. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> I can't they, imagine. They had dairy, they had fruits, they had vegetables, they drank liquor. While much of Howard's concept of his fictional Hyboria owes a debt to Scott Elliot's theosophically inspired work, Atlantis, Lemuria, Cataclysms, ancient technology, migration of various races... There are notably no snake priests in the whole of what Scott Elliot has to say. The conflict between self-oriented black sorcerers and followers of the good law suggests a plot that might involve something like snake priests, but there were no shapeshifters or reptilians to be found. On the subject of religion, Scott Elliot identifies a crew of adepts carrying the flame of secret knowledge through the ages, a theme of Blavatsky's secret doctrine. But in contrast to Howard's scheming snake priests, this group tends to steer clear of the halls of power and would have no interest in assassinating a king. Scott Elliot says that the first Manu, uh, or spiritual teacher, manifested as a king in the first subrace of the Ramoa Halls. He came to be regarded as a god in time, and this led to the practice of ancestor worship. The Tlavatali were taught by adepts of the existence of a supreme being, whose symbol was the sun, and they built monoliths to this god. Under the Toltecs, the adepts established a secret occult fraternity, who understood the mysteries of the universe. But this was kept separate from the popular religion, which continued to worship God through the symbol of the sun disk. No other image was permitted. This image eventually reverted to the image of a man, but this human symbol was eventually replaced by the Atlanteans' belief that they were their own gods and could create their own codes and laws for themselves. Sort of, human society is almost reaching that point again, isn't it? Animal totems joined this self-worship as objects of human blood sacrifice. In his tract on the Lemurians, so we're not done with Scott Elliott, He did both Atlantis and Lemuria, Scott Elliott, talking about the Lemurians, identifies the birth of a secret lodge, but again, no snake men. The Lemurian man lived among the reptiles and pine forests, but these reptiles were dinosaurs, not snake priests. Science bears this out, of course.
2: <laughs> Checks out.
0: Yep. Checks out, yes. Got Humans it. and dinosaurs. I remember that from the second grade. Nailed it. Land of the lost. <laughs> <laughs> Beings from Venus incarnated on Earth in order to serve as teachers for the Lemurians and to found the root race of the Atlanteans. These beings formed a secret lodge of initiation to work through the spiritual ennoblement of humankind. Real nice of them. We really need to turn to Blavatsky's secret doctrine, which is the inspiration for Scott Eliot's works to make the full connections to the Snake Men. Speaking on the fourth root race, Blavatsky says... Some of the descendants of the primitive nagas, the serpents of wisdom, peopled America when its continent arose during the palmy days of the great Atlantis. This sounds much more like Howard's concept of the snake people as an original and ancient race, but the serpents are incarnated angels whose purpose is the spiritual ennoblement of humankind, not their manipulation, and they aren't literally serpents. Blavatsky opens the door for misinterpretation when she argues that the serpent in the Garden of Eden and the fallen angel Lucifer were serpents of wisdom. As I've argued before, Blavatsky meant to reinterpret Judeo-Christian tradition such that the serpent encouraged spiritual enlightenment and elevating the self beyond material needs and concerns. But Robert E. Howard seems to have confused these beneficent serpents of wisdom with the selfish black magicians who sought to deceive humanity and bring it down, layering them on top of each other this same mistake would carry forward from Howard's short story into the now infamous work of David Icke. But uh, we'll save that for another time here on Occult Confessions. Ladies, thoughts on the snake priests of Atlantis?
2: Shit was wild. That was a
1: lot. But I really did enjoy the the stories. I thought they were really cool. Very dramatic.
2: <laughs> Honestly, yeah. for the time, too, that he was writing it, I'm, like, pretty, like impressed by how like mentally like twisty turny it was yeah you know
0: i think howard is underrated in a way uh, i would recommend reading these stories if if you if you were interested in this episode go i i don't think you would be disappointed to go back and read them uh, they're fun they're fun reads and not not too challenging and, and the twists and turns I are love, a good like time.
1: the dumb pointless attention to details like oh no the cat didn't actually talk but it's magical it's ancient <laughs> like like weird things like that it just seems to be a constant theme based off of what we heard it's just little attentions to detail that don't actually like they're not that important but it's fun and funny i think
0: well, yeah and it, it makes an interesting point about the culture howard uh, is an interesting writer is an interesting guy um not the only person in in lovecraft circle to commit suicide uh and lovecraft himself was quite disturbed a really interesting group of people, honestly, Yeah. Uh, as writers. Uh, speaking of which, I mean, we've got the David Icke connection at the end there. Isn't it interesting that the reptilian conspiracy theory gets its start in these fictional stories?
2: Yeah. And it's a yeah. misreading of Blavatsky. Right. Well, yeah. We, You and I have talked a lot about how Ike, overall is just a misreading, kind of, of Blavatsky. And a lot of other people, but... <laughs> I guess misreading is debatable, but <laughs> I'm saying misreading.
0: What 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 else would you call it?
2: No, I, I would call it a misreading.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, you mean like some people might say he's not misreading. He's right. reading between the lines or something.
2: Yeah, or, you
0: know. Or he's just reading Robert E. Howard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: now I'm kind of interested to see like just how many details because I can't really remember like exactly what ike had to say about atlantis to be totally honest with you but
0: it's conceivable that he read robert e howard but you know it's highly likely that he saw the arnold schwarzenegger conan the barbarian in 1982 which included yeah james earl jones playing essentially the snake priest character
1: yeah.
0: from these stories even though they're not in the conan stories you know they were all mashed together so the snake priest theme was brought into popular consciousness beyond just the howard stories i mean these are kind of deep cuts that's the fun i guess of these episodes that we tell people about stories that they probably haven't read but anyhow
2: this would make a great video game like if someone <laughs> oh this. definitely like that's such a big thing now i feel like people do but
0: i'm picturing
1: this as like, a, this is, like a really good like side scroller yeah.
0: i volunteered to be your uh researcher if anyone out there wants to design the The Robert E. Howard Cole Warrior King, yeah, Jacob, maybe, yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, we just made Jacob's start that GoFundMe page. page. (laughs) Yeah, honestly.
8: Hey guys, this is Brandon, uh, the Silver Tongue Shadow.
9: Hey, this is Johnny Cook. Uh, Rob asked us to recollect a special moment that we can remember from kind of the behind the scenes of the podcast. And it got me thinking to when I kind of first started getting involved.
8: I remember when Rob told me that he wanted to start a podcast and he asked me to sort of help with the discussion and the um particularly the voice acting side
9: of uh this show. And um I was enrolled in Rob's theater class at the time, like the history of theater. Because at the time I had done like no acting because I had like the worst stage fright but a friend of mine told me about a podcast that Robin started doing and at this point I think it was the end of season one because I think the first time I did any sort of recording was or was at the recording was the Marie Laveau episode but the first time I actually remember like the bits we did was when Brandon, Shannon, Savannah, Ray and Lucy and I did the cannonball bit for the quantum consciousness episode.
0: Hey, this is Daniel. Um, favorite moment of the podcast, probably Chinese secret societies, because I got to brandish a wooden sword and smack Sam Stein with it, and that probably by default tops everything else. Either that or playing
8: Charles Manson. Um, everything got shut down. And uh, due to COVID, and all of us here are traditionally stage actors and stage performers. So not being able to perform (laughs) has been a little um, hard for me. You know, it's been more than a year and a half since our last stage show. And I am so itching to get back on stage, but I've also been very thankful for the opportunities to continue voicing these characters and these roles for Rob and um, you guys listening.
9: And I, (laughs) I had, I was kind of scared. Didn't really know what I was getting into because I'd never even done skits, but I just remember feeling so comfortable around them and in that environment. And I just remember laughing to myself because everyone was so funny and the chemistry was great. And it was so engaging, it just it got me completely hooked. And I really don't think I would be where I am today if I didn't get involved with the podcast. So, great memories.
10: I think one of my favorite moments from the podcast, besides being able to do this with all of my bestest friends and just like hang out and chat and have fun, was one day when we were trying to record an episode, <laughs> no matter where we tried to record, just something was going wrong. Um, we were in a classroom and I think about halfway through recording the fans just kicked on and they were so loud and it just kept messing with everything so we tried to find another spot we ended up in like a conference room but the equipment wasn't working in there we went to the costume closet but the sound just wasn't right and then we even like tried going into the attic of the building which I tell you what that place is horrifying it looks like a scene out of a horror movie and i think to this day i'm still somewhat like scarred by it
6: hi everyone it's luke uh i think my fondest memory has been like getting to work with the alchemical actors in *A call confessions i came in when they started dunwich and i got the chance to edit that and it was just so exciting because it was before i had met everyone and so I could hear all these unique voices in different ways and they've been used throughout the podcast before. And it was just exciting for me. So that's probably one of my favorite experiences working with Occult Confessions so far. And I'm looking forward to all the opportunities to keep working with them in the future.
10: But we finally like managed to find a spot to record and we got through it. And everyone was like a little bit tense at first, but after we got done recording, everyone just kind of like sat back and laughed for a little bit because it was just ridiculous. Um, But it was worth it. And it was a fun little adventure (laughs) trying
0: to record. All right, Olivia, bring us on home.
2: I hereby adjourn and declare a close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such time as we get together and do
0: it again. Required the full talents of the Voice Boys to pull this episode off today, Sean Priest and Brandon Walls, Andrew Mims and Luke Kinneman. I am joined this day by Bree Literal, our metallurgic prophet.
1: Bye guys.
0: And Olivia Litterall, Grandmaster.
2: Goodbye.
0: My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of your secret order of alchemical actors. And I will catch you next time as we proceed uh, down this dark journey through reptilians and necronomicons and sundry other monsters that rise from the depths of the imagination here on Occult Confessions.
1: That was pretty metal, Rob. (laughs)